Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you listen to the podcast. I am here with Nancy Hannigan. Now, I know that your name has just changed recently, and that's why I paused on that. And am I correct that that is the current name? Yes, I have my former name, Disterlick, in there, because if you Google my credentials or my history, Disterlick is how I'm searched. But I've recently gotten married. So yes, now I go by Nancy Hannigan. I wanted to make sure I was on the right, uh, going the right direction there for a moment. I was pausing. So I'm here with Nancy Hannigan. She is a dyslexia specialist, tutor, special ed teacher, and speaker from the Texas area who has just recently moved to another state and has been doing some amazing things in the South. And I'd love for you to hear what she has to say today. Welcome to the podcast, Nancy. And how are you really? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's been kind of a whirlwind. It's been a nice little journey. I was an elementary teacher for several years, uh, six years. And then I kept gravitating towards kids who were struggling to read. And so my my campus was like, hey, you know, you do well with these kids. I was like, yeah, I really enjoy them. They're the quirkier, the better. And that led me into dyslexia therapy. And when I discovered the tools and resources of the science of reading, it changed my outlook on what educators know. And I wish that we, they knew more. And that's how it started. I just was like, teachers need to know about the science of reading. So it, it, it went from there. Amazing. I can't wait to learn more about how you're working and tutoring and, and what you're doing now. But before we do, I'd like to introduce Daughter Educational Consulting. It is our mission to help teachers, therapists, and parents raise the next generation of leaders by hacking barriers to student success. Dysgraphia. Did you know that we offer two five-day challenges, one, the Roadmap to Hacking Dysgraphia, and the other one, Math Disconnected, to help you build your skills with math and with writing? And so we are at sherrydotterer.com, which is C-H-E-R-I-D-O-T-T-E-R-E-R. Nancy, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your business? So I, I actually, there was, there was a little leap. So I went from elementary to high school as a dyslexia therapist. And then in Texas, the state is divided up into 20 different educational regions. And I became the dyslexia consultant for region 10, which is the Dallas area. And what a gift, because it's kind of an epicenter of where dyslexia really got some roots. Uh, they had the Scottish Rite, Lucius Waits Center. So they really have history of identifying and remediating students with dyslexia. So I just had a rich resources of how to ch- change and channel my career. Well, in that position, I was able to uh, help with conferences and meet people across the country. I was able to be exposed to more knowledge. And so the the more you learn, the more you grow and it just continued to evolve. So now I'm out on my own and I have a company called Dyslexia Connects. And I'm basically wanting to work with individual districts or with the state and also with parents and students on how to create a program where the student is identifying their social needs their academic needs, and how classroom teachers understand accommodations. And the truth of it is many of our teachers are not equipped on how to administer accommodations in a way that is tailored to the students. And so what I have found, like I'll go to train a school and possibly if I ask the entire second grade of one campus, what does oral accommodation mean to you? And for sure, it's different per teacher. And it's the same campus, the same resources, but they're all doing administering it differently. Well, that affects our kids because they're like, what's wrong with me? Or what did I do wrong? The parents are like, why aren't you engaged? Well, it was the accommodation. So Dyslexia Connects, I really hope to go into schools and put in some training and resources so the schools are aligned on how to help the students inside of the classroom. I love that. You mentioned about the accommodations and that each teacher is 
saying that the accommodations are different, like their interpretation of it happens mm-hmm. with writing as well. I, I've gone into this same building, kindergartens, and they're teaching kids how to write the letter B three different ways for okay. three years. There's this lack of standardized curriculum for handwriting across the country and across the world has really made a difference in understanding both the reading and the writing. And the other one that falls behind is math does nobody understands how to correct correctly or adaptively instruct math. It it's really frustrating. So kudos to all the special ed teachers out there that are helping with adaptive math, but there's a lot more that needs to be learned. We are addressing reading really well, and we're really trying to move forward and have that alignment. RTI has helped us with that. But on handwriting, I did not coin this phrase, but uh, you hear dystichia. And I really do agree. We've got a lot of classroom teachers that have not had it in their curriculum that they were supposed to be emphasizing handwriting, and they haven't had proper instruction. So we have a lot of handwriting that is just the lack of teachers having the tools and resources on how to implement it. And one of the thing with handwriting or anything that I'm promoting is it's not just alignment, but it's also individualization at the exact same time. And so you're standardizing how you're doing it, but you're also having to look at the individual child and make the adjustments. What if they're left-handed? What if they're right-handed? What if they they're that pencil grip? I mean, there's so many different things that you want to look at when you're administering handwriting. One of my favorite things to do, this is probably off a little bit, but I would put my head on the table and just watch my second graders write. And I would just observe before I interjected my opinion or my view. And so it wasn't like everybody. Stop, the- Stop a second. You did what? You put your head on the table? Yeah, I would lay next to the student when they were writing. You're Okay, now I'm like, oh, no, is that weird? But I would I would put my I, I'd put my head down and watch the actual penmanship and the paper. And, and I and I let my student know in a most beautiful way. I was like, I just want to watch you express yourself with a pencil. So just keep just keep writing. I love that. I really wanted to make sure I heard you correctly. That's beautiful <laughs> that you are a teacher that was that invested in each individual students. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned, you know, standardization and individualization. Inclusion means everyone. We need to be able to adapt entire classrooms so that everyone is able to have access. And I really like the RTI programs that we can adapt the something that was a tier two and make it a tier one for the whole classroom. And then we can shift and we are really creating this environment where the whole classroom has access what used to be something that only in certain kids had access to. And so I guess I'm use, I'm thinking about pens as we're talking about this. How many pens today look like the old Bic did 25 years ago? Not wow. too many. We've adapted them and now they're, they're standard across the world. And that's also how needs to happen in education. Well, and how how beautiful is it when we when we started teaching handwriting uh, in my second grade classroom or even in first grade, we talked about how personal it was. And I'd say when you read a letter from a different person, I can tell your handwriting without your name on your paper. I know which paper is whose. So it is okay for it to be individual, but we want to be able to express it where we transfer our thoughts to where someone else can read it. My students knew that it didn't matter if they had to erase their paper multiple times or they had to write more than once. We just made writing such a process goal and not an end goal. And so every student had uh, their own strategies. My individual kids on their desk would have uh, everybody in the classroom. And I had kids that were in the gifted program and kids that had an IEP. But everybody had a piece of paper on their desk with goals on it. And that way it wasn't good or bad, it was everyone is trying to improve and what are our strategies. And one of the main things was handwriting. And we talked about this, the spacing stick and the, and my, one of my, one of my favorite things to do was um, I had uh, 
a student, I, I mean, it was just one day I was like, what, how do I get him to connect? He wasn't putting the tails on the G, the Y, the, he, he put them all above the line. So I went over to him and, and I said, um, and I don't know if he needs therapy later for this one, but uh, I went over to him and I said, um, I don't know if you know this, but the letters, the letters asked me to ask you a question. Said, what? I said, yeah, the letters were wondering why you didn't let them have tails. He went, what? And I said, well, let me show you. Like, you know how monkeys have a tail? Some of these letters are like, is he mad? Will you not let me let him dangle? Like, does he not like me? He was like, no. And I said, yeah, so let's, let's go through some of the ones that have tails. They just really wish they could swing down below the line. It was the first time that he saw the letter differently. It had nothing to do with his penmanship, had nothing to do with his dexterity or, or fine motor skill. It was the connection to the letter that was more emotional and connected to him. And so then he was like, Mrs. D, look, they all have their tails. And I was like, what's happening? So handwriting is such a beautiful personal experience. And I want my kids to enjoy it and not feel like they were being monitored or it was right or wrong. Uh, we allowed them to explore it and to meet it individual. And we talked about font and curly. And so no, here, here's ahead. another one I do for go handwriting ahead. that I think is powerful. <laughs> is I have my pumpkins talking to the computer and then I print it out. Then I transfer their thought, their sentence knowledge, right? The way they speak, their vernacular. And then I have them trace their own words. It's more authentic than when you give them a piece of paper and you're like, you know, trace and then rewrite. They rewrote from a pathway already in that brain that made sense to them. And I, I found my kids another way to connect to writing. They were like, oh, Mrs. D, I just said that to you the other day. And I said, I know you always say, you know, razzmatazz. Well, I had razzmatazz written out. And then now he wanted to write it and connect. So, yeah, I think handwriting is one of the most personal, beautiful things when kids actually take pride in their writing. And I always have samples. And I'm like, look where you were like a month ago. Do you see how you're getting your size of those shapes? Mrs. D. And I'm like, yeah, I don't even know if you noticed how much you're improving. It it just, it was a beautiful process to watch kids learn to write and, and take pride and ownership in their handwriting. I love that you would always get their perspective on their own handwriting. I love that you were using assistive technologies to help assist them with their sentence structure, yet reinforce the handwriting as well. That is so cool. And it's one of those things that I teach is using my phone to record whatever it is that they're saying. And if I need to use a transcription software to transcribe it, depending on what I'm doing with the students, some I'll use Otter AI. Mm-hmm. And then depending on the student, I might need to just do a dictation or we might read it, put it aside now, regenerate some new sentences from the conversation that we had. And that reinforcement sometimes really helps self-generation of sentences because you've kind of thought it through a little bit. You've had a discussion about it. Now put it on paper. And if they can't, we backtrack to dictation. If they can't, we backtrack to copy whatever it is that they initially put into a transcript. I could hug you right now uh, because I cannot tell you how many times The goal seems to be to completely remediate. Okay, I'm glad we've got remediation in there, but we also need to give survival skills while we have identified a disability. And so speech to text, text to speech, these are powerful available tools that we're not to say, well, when it gets bad enough, let's let them use it. I incorporate technology into the general ed classroom for all the students. And that way my kids who are atypical, They've got another skill, but my kids who desperately need this to express themselves, they have it. And I emphasize all the time to my dyslexic kids, kids with dysgraphia, the most important thing is that the way you think is expressed. And Mrs. D is so privileged to have your perspective in my room. And then I would alternate the way that they got to express thought. And once they knew that their thought was what I was after, or that's what the goal was, then they became more confident that there was different ways to express. And I love speech to text and text to speech. I mean, I had high school, this is, I had elementary kids. I start off with my example, but I had high school kids who would freeze when there was an essay. 
And then when I made it available to dictate, yeah, you see, you're like, yes, it wasn't that the content was hard. It was the vessel to express it. And so I had the privilege also to educate my teachers. My teachers all had the best interest at mind. They're like, Nancy, they have to pass the standardized test and they've got to have writing. And I said, yes. But right now we have an emotional block because they're too afraid to even attempt. And so it's the emotional block, not the uh, thought process. So let me work with you to get the student where they're like, oh my gosh, I knew how to answer that. And I'm like, you did, babe. And so let's get that dictation. And on a day that they're very tired, I always put it back to arthritis. There are people with arthritis that can walk a mile, but on certain days, they might not be able to get through that mile. At the end of a day, they might not be able to do a mile. They might not be able to do the mile without medication or on a hot day. If you have dysgraphia or dyslexia, I'm not incapable, but there are days that it is harder for me to process and to produce. So when I taught my students that there are days that it's harder, I want you to learn who you are and what you need, take ownership of it. And then let's communicate and educate our staff and teachers so that they work with you. I mean, it changed for them. And they were like, Mrs. D, today, I think, will you dictate for me? I'm like, absolutely. Today's the day. They didn't do it all the time. And I would type out their thoughts. We let the teacher know in advance, hey, today, Mrs. D is doing the typing. We wanted to make sure you got their information and content. We didn't want to showcase disability. We wanted to showcase their thoughts. And the teachers worked with us. It was fantastic. And because they knew we they were valued and their thoughts were important, they then turned it around and they were writing. Sorry, I get very passionate because there's so many kids out there that are being missed out. They're not getting to express themselves. And, and that's not fair to uh, for any of us. We want to know them. I just want like sound effects, like fireworks and, and a <laughs> celebration and a birthday yeah. party or whatever going on behind me, because what you're saying is so precious yeah, and so needed across the curriculum. And I just believe that it's because teachers don't know how to make the shift. We need to teach them the how. But it's, it's not, it's not even just that the, the curriculum is asking them to have a standard. And so they are doing their jobs with such incredible devotion. I it, rarely do I meet a teacher that's not working really hard. So what I want to give them and in these trainings, I'm like, the work needs to be on the student and not you. And so we want to make sure that you're giving them the skills and resources so that they're doing the work. And instead, what a, I feel like a lot of I watched high school teachers, they spent their time trying to get papers in. They're like, okay, they're, they still haven't turned this in. They still haven't turned it in. We don't want the pattern of procrastination. We want the pattern of strategies that work for a student with a specific disability. And I found dragon speech to be successful, which can be um, with that disability. They could use it on a standard state assessment. And the kids who don't want to use it, they're not going to. So the meaning if they don't need it, they're not going to abuse speech to text. So training the teachers ahead of time. And I'm going to shout out Mrs. Harris is like, gosh, she says my name all the time, but she's my, if there was ever a teacher, I could just put out across the country, Mrs. Harris, she was tough. And the kids with the first week, I was like, no, nope. they're like, Mrs. D, you got to pull me from her class. She's too hard. And I said, nope, she will be one of the teachers that you come back and you visit because she will not ever change her expectation for you. You will work hard in that classroom and you will develop skills. And the reason why you'll love her is she'll meet you every morning or stay after school or meet you at lunch, whatever you need so that you can be successful and you see your success. And so what she would do is she'd sit down with me uh, before the school year and know individually my different students' needs. And she made sure that those resources were available. And if speech to text was a way we were going to get their poetry, we did it. We had Grammarly. We had the different skills. And those kids, they, they did. They were like, Mrs. D, I love her. And I'm like, she's hard. But it's because you deserve it. And, and I think a lot of teachers don't have the tools or the time to individualize that so they get the work out of the kids. And, and it does take time. And, it, and it, I, I tell my teachers, you can do a lot of work all year long or you can do a lot of work up front. And if you'll spend that time at the beginning of the year to really know those students and their needs, you're going to have a student doing their work. Oh, it, and it, it is so on point. Oh, Nancy, it is so on point. It's everything that John Lee and I are teaching. And 
and this connection with reading, writing, and math. So I mentioned John Lee. John Lee Zupanzik is a math teacher. She and I are co-writing a book on dyscalculia. And our big premise is the kids want to feel like they have a sense of belonging in the classroom, that they're successful. Mm-hmm. That's all they're looking for. Kids come to school in general. Kids come to school wanting to please the adults that are around them. And whether their home life is a disaster, they still are coming to school looking to please some adult. And when they then have the compounding struggles on top of it, we need to just have tools as the adults, subtle tools that are going to make things better across the curriculum. That's why some of the things that that John Lee and I have been teaching are quick activities that don't take a lot of time because the stress on the teacher with their schedule and their demands is high. And I know that. It's funny that you say that because I call my strategies salt strategies because they're so quick and so easy that many teachers don't do them. They're like, well, that can't make that much of a difference. It's too easy. And so I'm like, no, no, no. It's like when you're making dinner and all it needs is a little bit of salt and now it tastes good. That's how simple some of these strategies are, but the impact, the students can discern the information so much different. So my biggest one, which I also do this for my students that had dyscalculia, is highlighters. One of the first things I do with my students is I ask them, what color do you see your math in? And they will usually have a color like, oh, it's green. And I'm like, all right. Like they have a color, they see it. And then I'm like, okay, green is going to be, do you want that to be your, like if this is third grade, do you want that to be your multiplication or do you want it to be division? Oh, green's multiplication. Okay, what color do you want division? Orange. All right. So I make a key, the piece of paper on that desk, then they already know that's how they're going to do it. Before they ever start the work, they have to do the pre-work. And that's prepping your page. And I've got kids over here who draw a line. They only want to see three at a time. I have another student who's using graph paper. I have another student who's using a calculator. I let my kids know math, writing, learning is individual. And so there's there was never, oh, why is he using that way? I mean, we had we had a standard goal, but we did not have a standard process. And that's that's then that's what I hope to encourage many teachers to do. And until I was told, I, I didn't know you could even use an accommodation without it being in a 504 or an IEP. Until I learned that I could administer. Yeah, I was a classroom teacher. Like, oh, I can't do that until I'm told I can do it. And once I learned I could do accommodations, as long as I was documenting it and being transparent with the parent and our SIT team, which is you know the team that communicates about the kids, I was able to say, you know what. This student, when I administer color or I administer chunking or I administer audio, I had a different outcome than I had data that I was gathering. And that freedom in the classroom to take grades creatively, I could take one assignment and gather information for different reasons from that one student. It just, it opened up the ability to really serve my students appropriately. And that's what I wish most teachers had available to them is the freedom to grow with the kids. I, I never taught the same any year because the, my classroom was different. I, if you have a new kid with a new quirk, you're like, hmm, <laughs> we're both going to grow. Yeah, I, I, I love that you're doing work on dyscalculia because there's just not enough out there on that. And I had several high school students who were identified as dyslexic but they were strong readers. And I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. And what I think they picked up on is the processing that neither of my girls were successful in algebra. And so one day I just went over to the board and I said, okay, I do not want to be disrespectful in any way to you, but I don't know where your gap is. Are you okay if I go back to like addition? And they're like, oh, Mrs. D, you can go back to addition. I still use my fingers. And I said, okay, let's navigate numbers in a number line. And they did not have a strong reference. They nope, were not familiar with why a negative sign, how it could increase the number, but go down the line differently. They didn't understand or could conceptualize fractions. And so here they were in high school and we were doing some foundational, we were doing foundational math and they were eating it up. 
And I was like, okay, these girls have not been appropriately identified. I really think that's what it is. So one of the things I've learned from John Lee is that number line is the most abstract concept before you get to algebraic concepts. The best way to help educate kids on number sense is an activity called quick dots. And you can convert any dot pattern into a mathematical equation. It's just a matter of looking at how they are choosing to look at the dots to find the mathematical equation. And we start off oftentimes doing the most complex that we can fit on a page and then breaking it down to the smaller parts so that the kids can see the end result. Another thing that we as teachers, as professionals like to do is make sure that they have the answer. And many times if we leave the instruction hang, they actually come to the answer on their own or and they'll come back to you and ask you for more details to get the answer because their brain's going to mull on something. Our brains are made that way. Our brains want to resolve the problem. And if we leave the problem hanging, the best time to an- for them to answer the- those problems is while they're sleeping. And it's one of the reasons I advocate for sleep as part of an IEP is that if kids are not getting effective sleep, we need to be aware of that during the school day so that we can accommodate that lack of of a circadian cycle. I think you and I uh, will probably have to keep up our conversations. You just hit on several things that I talk about. You are correct. So many of my high school students, I had two in particular. I went to my principal and I said, okay, I'm a pullout therapy. We agree. He's like, yeah. And I said, so I'm going to make a therapeutic decision. I have two students that need to take a nap in my room. And I do not want you to come in my class and say, I'm not doing my job. I'm going to observe it. I'm going to document it. And I'm going to see if I have results in it. But I do believe I've got students who are taking care of siblings. I have students who are working a second job to pay bills. And they are coming to school with a disability. And I really believe if I give them some rest, they're going to be able to be successful in their classes. And luckily, I had a beautiful principal administration. He said, you know, document it. Let me know. And I said, yeah, I don't want you to walk in here and think I'm neglecting. And her graduation party, I'm grateful. And she said, Mrs. D, it's the fact that you let me sleep in class that I was able to graduate. And it wasn't all the time. It wasn't any day. And she did not take advantage of it. She would just come in and I could tell. And I was like, do we have, are we going to use our other therapy today? And she was like, I think so, Mrs. D. And I was like, all right, we're good. And I gave her the space to own her own needs. I did not discipline her. I allowed her the freedom. So I'm very high on you for sleep. And then the other thing you commented on was, um, okay, Chris Wooden, he came in for a dyslexia conference and he was talking about math. And I'm like, okay, I really, you know, I know we transfer and and different things. And um, and I know I struggled uh, with memorizing my multiplication facts. Like that was a big deal, how stressful that was for me. So, oh, and your audience may not know, I have dyslexia. So I, and I was unidentified till I was 43. So I developed anxiety. I just was like, what is wrong with me? And once I had an accurate view of myself, it did catapult my life because then I, I was able to advocate instead of hide. But um, Chris Wooden came in and he put down a sheet of paper. It was at our tables and I looked down at it and I, and he gave us no instructions. He was like, you know, try to solve it. And I solved it rather quickly. And I'm at the table with some really smart people and they were still working on it. So of course I know I've done it wrong. So I'm going back in there trying to figure out how to do it the right way since there's no way I finished first. And he said, time. And he put a slide up and he said, if you were able to complete this, you most likely have dyslexia. And my friends were like, Nancy, you got it. And I was like, yeah, he's about to say not, you know, you know, something I always have to do something self-deprecating. So I was like, you know, trying to like, oh, I'm sure I did something wrong. And he said, Students with dyslexia are able to have a spatial reasoning inside of math. And if we teach them with spatial reasoning, 
the concepts come to them, not through vocabulary and not through symbol, but through spatial. And it was the first time I was like, if someone would have taught me this. So um, that I hope that's what I what I understood you to kind of say. You're working with these kids through their strengths and not inside of the disability. And then once you get that strength concept, then you layer in their disability and you show the symbol and the, and the vocabulary. So one of the other things that I am teaching it and trying to encourage school districts to embrace is that the occupational therapist and or speech and or physical therapist should be in the regular ed classroom while the teacher is doing the main lesson, they can be as a co-teacher, very different than what a paraprofessional would be because they're able then to redirect and create that accommodation on the spot. But there is no reason why we as related services should not be in their classroom as co-teachers and pull in our strengths. So if we have a situation where we need to do some physical exercise, put the PT up front for five minutes. Let them do something to enhance the classroom. Put the speech therapist up front and we'll go through some exercises to help with articulation. Put the OT up front. We'll help you out with some handwriting and give you some concrete ideas to help support handwriting for all of the students. So that's one of the things that I've been uh, trying to advocate. And it's going slowly, but it'll it'll eventually catch on because we can't afford doing education like we're doing. We are going to need reform. So let me ask you this. Are you familiar with Montessori? Mm-hmm. So when I was going through school, I thought Montessori meant kids played and you watched them play and they got to play the way they wanted. And then our district trained us on daily five as a classroom management style. And it flipped my philosophy. And basically it's a Montessori type of classroom where it's individualized for every student. I saw the progress. Um, it talked about, and this is another, I mean, a little strategy that doesn't matter, typical or atypical, but you, the adult, need to be aware of the age of a child and you need to keep your lessons to their engagement. So if I know you're only seven and you have ADHD, I need to be three to four minutes with my any directions. And so by me changing my strategy to work with students, they were more engaged they were more motivated and then more information stuck because I did not drain their capacity to be paying attention. And I, Sorry. the Montessori style, which is what I think you're kind of gearing toward because you're giving a multitude of strategy for atypical students and the teachers are equipped so that they can handle the different situations. And I do agree. Occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, there's so many great tools that a general classroom teacher would be like, I didn't even know. And they're now stronger, more equipped teachers in the classroom. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So one of the things I like to do is I like to leave with an intervention. Typically, I leave this intervention and it's totally podcasted. But I am going to do something today that we almost need a visual for. So Nancy, I am warning you, I'm going to take this little segment of of this and I'm going to be putting this up on YouTube so that you can see what I'm talking about here with my audience. So Nancy, one of the things that we do is we call whisper counting. And that is we'll go six. Twelve. And that helped the kids with the skip counting because you had mentioned the counting earlier. This is a the visual spatial piece helps kids make the connections to number sense. And if we can get the concepts of we have this two groups of six, but we count them out, it's much easier than to circle the numbers on what we usually use a 120 chart rather than a 100 chart so that we can actually have all the numbers in the factors included. So we then have them highlight and we will do two different colors. So the whispered 
are one highlighter color, and then the loud number is then a different highlighter color so that they get used to the idea of making the connection from here to on the chart. And then we take that chart, we cut the chart up to make a number line. I love that. I love that. I love that. First of all, thank you for using the color. Thank you for having the visual. Thank you for having them have a physical motor connection to it. Whisper and then say it out loud. I mean, all of those are that multi-sensory way to connect to concept. Montessori also has like the cubes. Do you do the yeah. cubes? Where you... I leave the math teacher do the, the cubes, but yeah, we do those too. <laughs> it's my other, whenever they, they had them stack them, it, like what you were saying before, how they just need to have the time and they need to sleep on it and come back. They have them early on just playing with the blocks, just touching them and exploring them and building with them before we ever add conceptual ideas to something that is uh, tangible. So mm -hmm. I love going to conferences because every time I go to one, I pick up something and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I'd known this. Well, I hope that you come to Texas Region 10 in in July because yes, and I are going to be there. I love that. I can't wait to meet you in person and welcome. You're going to love the Summer Institute. There are so many engaging teachers that are just soaking it up because they want to go back to the classroom and, and make it right for kids. Love it. So yeah, so everybody, John Lee and I are speaking at the Region 10 Dyslexia, Summer Dyslexia Institute on July 19th. And then we are also each doing a breakout session. She is going to be gearing more towards math. And I'm going to be gearing more towards the visual spatial aspects and the neuroscience and the cognitive connections to visual spatials. And things like this whisper counting that I just did. And we're going to bring out the Purple X. I don't know how much you've heard me talk about the Purple X here on the podcast, but I know Nancy doesn't have any idea what I'm talking about, but she, uh, John Lee has created this X. And one of the things that she does with these dots is she will show the dot, take it away, and then have the kids estimate how many they saw. And she can get a bit good idea of their number sense. I use the air quotes, but that's exactly what they're look. She's looking for with estimation is she's looking for how much do they get the visual connection to the number of dots, and we get a lot of adults that will say there's 81 because the way it's created, there's uh, nine dots in a chunk, but they're overlapped, so there's really 73. I'm I'm one of those nerds. I like I love observing kids. That would be wonderful to watch the kids and then to implement that. Like, just is that something that you have in the classroom and you would pull a student out just like you would reading and just she does it with the entire classroom. She does Ooh. the entire classroom. She uh, does a special program with a private school in Ohio, and she's been doing this with them two days a week. She has been following the same group of kids from kindergarten doing uh, various tasks repeatedly, and they are now in fifth grade. They have kids that have recorded disabilities. Their math scores are averaging standard score of 73 or better with a dyscalculia as a diagnosis because the way she's treating number sense and visual spatial and when, when we connected, I brought in the neuroscience connections and I talk and I instructed the teachers that she's working with as well about the proprioception, the kinesthetic, the vestibular parts and the connections between what they're teaching in the math and what are some of the things in the science that they might look for. I'm so excited because we we have so many kids up at high school that don't have that foundation uh, mastery. And they, they are just kind of getting by when they could have really enjoyed math. Her training is high school. So she is a high school uh, algebra teacher and realized that the littler kids could do very similar stuff that the older kids could do. We just had to tweak it a little bit. And she has the same activity that she, like the Purple X, 
the same activity she will give the, the kinders and the 12th graders. And she grades the delivery of use, usage of the Purple X based on what the standards are. And she has done enormous work on the math standards. And then, of course, I'm bringing in the writing and the connections to how to get it on paper and some of the adaptations that you can make because kids don't understand symbols. I will agree. But kids, but kids, kids are, are can quickly grasp them when we give them the skill set or introduce them in a way that they go, oh, and one of the, one of the things, and this, this goes into math, is I one of my slides talks about uh, when you're memorizing opposite concept, you need to memorize one so you know them both. And the best example I have for because for dyslexia kids, up and down, on and off, backwards, forwards, left, right. It's not that I don't understand them. It's the vocabulary link to which one you're discussing. And so one of my, some of my high school students, very bright, committed kids. I mean, they they're, they are devoted to working hard in school. One of them is like, Mrs. D, I know the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean border the U.S. I just forget which one's where. And I said, okay, I, I totally get that. That's part of our disability. We will get concepts mixed. And I said, so I want you to memorize one. So point, go over to the map, point to which side of the U.S. was discovered first. They point to the East Coast. And I said, what's the first letter of the alphabet? <gasps> From then on, they already always know Atlantic, so they now know Pacific. And the same is true for math. They forget which one is the multiplication, which one's the division. It's not that they, it's just they're holding the symbol. So I make sure that we do, and that I do it. And when people are like, Nancy, how do you do it? I'm like, well, it depends on the kid. So if I've got a kid that the multiplication, like I just know his personality, I'm like X marks the spot. You're going to multiply your treasure. Okay, now that kid's like, okay, now I know multiplying is more. Or if I have one like, chop it in half. Somehow I've got the students who I've linked the symbol to something that is meaningful. And then we add a color to it. And if you know one, now my student knows both. And and, and, and it changes the way they inter interact with math. And it had nothing to do with math. It had to understanding the system and symbols within it. The concepts. It, the concepts. You know, it step back and give some visual aspect that they could relate to the concept mm -hmm. before you could apply the procedure. Right. And again, that goes back to teacher training. And so this is also one of the stories that I share. My daughter, all three of my kids have this one teacher and she was known to be kind of cranky, but she was good and she was a good teacher. And my daughter was in the back seat, and she said, mom, I think I figured out Mrs. Smith. And when I looked at her like, did you? Because I haven't. And she said, and she wasn't being disrespectful. My daughter had an aha moment for herself. And she said, mom, Mrs. Smith loves science. She doesn't like kids. And I'm like, I think that's true for a lot of educators. They fall, they're in love with their subject and the kids get in the way of them getting to teach what they love. And I think it's equipping our teachers on how to work with the kids who don't know how to do your subject. Uh, there was a lady at Region 10 and I'm so sorry, I don't know her name. So if she ever hears this podcast, she deserves all the credit for this. I was, she was a master math teacher and she said her professor in college was known, everyone loved taking them. And she gets in this room and she was like, this is the worst class ever. She was like, why does everyone brag on this class? I can't, it's, it's not what I wanted. What he would do is he would put problems on the board that were wrong over and over and over and over again. And he's like, find the mistake, find the mistake, find the mistake. And midway through, he said, you guys know how to do math. To be a great teacher, you've got to figure out why they don't know how to do the math. And I went, exactly. Oh, my gosh. That's the great teachers. It's the ones who aren't expecting the right answer. It's the ones that want to unfold for a student how to get to, to discover and be engaged in finding what was wrong. And it's brilliant. So one of the techniques that John Lee and I are sharing is this technique of folding paper to make the relationship to division. And she actually believes that you should teach division in kindergarten and leave subtraction for, for fourth grade, just an FYI. But anyway, the idea with the paper folding 
is you fold once and you have two parts. You have fold twice, you have four parts. You fold three times and the kid's best wrong answer is what she calls that. And she's been able to identify with the 15 years or 20 years of experience that she has, what is the thing that the kids are going to identify as wrong? And she has this whole thing about best wrong answer. What are the answers that kids are going to naturally give you the answer that's incorrect? But that means that they have a decent connection with concepts for math. They just need it that visual to reinforce it versus kids that are going to say like four or three that really don't understand the concepts in math. So a best wrong answer when you fold it three times, the real answer is eight. The best wrong answer is six. Okay. So here's the thing I love, love. So in my classroom, and I didn't know that research supported this, until I read read the book, um, How the Brain Learns by Dr. David Sousa. And in my classroom, I, I mean, I have dyslexic, so I knew I was going to make mistakes. So from the beginning of the year, I said, guys, every time you make a mistake, you're counting how much you're learning. And I said, so we're going to count Mrs. D's mistakes in the classroom. So if you ever see me misspell a word, help me out. I look forward to learning from you. Well, what I didn't realize I was doing is I'm transferring the same thing for them. And so when we would do math in the classroom, I said, if you got the answer correct, I'm so grateful for you. But if you didn't get the same answer on the board, let's talk about that. Because someone else in the room probably had the same ending. So let's explore it. How did we get there? And so in my classroom, what I didn't realize is my kids had endorphins when they came to an obstacle instead of cortisol. Because we already had in place that it's it's okay to not have the answer, it was great to become stronger learners and to make mistakes was part of the process. So for her to put that concept in elementary school, you're not just putting in, how do I get an answer? You're teaching them how to solve a problem. And then you're also telling them, how do I explore what is in front of me and learn from what it is? That's critical thinking. And and I agree, you want more of that inside of a classroom. And you started early. Well, the other concept, this is maybe why you're intrigued by me, is I teach my parents that I only use the Socratic method. And so your student, when they come to me, I'm going to answer them back with a question. Um, Not in, you know, Mrs. D is the room on fire, but in learning, I'm going to answer back. I don't really know. What do we see here? Well, how could you find out what it is? What could you use to solve that? So you put it back on the students so that by the end of the school year, you had these kids who were thinkers and confident problem solvers. That's what we want inside of school. Yeah, I'm, that's it. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what she's do, using. I agree with that concept being taught younger and that that exploration and that and the visual concept. Um, so many layers there. And it's very easy from a progress monitoring formative assessment to take that piece of paper with the number that they picked before they opened it up on that piece of paper with their initials on it, throw it into a Ziploc bag. That way you can take it home. You can then at home record whatever you need to on whatever data sheet it is that you're progress monitoring. The other thing that I'm sharing is how to progress monitor effectively functional tasks. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to up your game. Here's something I want to challenge you on, and I really do strongly encourage this. I encourage you to have parent night training on this. So that way in the fall and in the spring, parents get to see some of the things that you're training. I hope the staff does that. I had higher results because I was very active in my parents being a part of whatever we were learning. And there that came from. They changed the math curriculum when my kids were in middle school and I couldn't help them with their homework. I was like, I don't even, what are you doing? And they're like, well, mom, you've got to do this and this and this. And I was like, I need to go back to school and know how to do math because I can't help my kids. So I do, I think there's an important element. And so that's what I did with my dyslexia therapy. Um, I The parents were required to have another separate session with me. And then every October and April, we would do parent nights. So that way they were, knowledgeable of the resources and technology and they were advocates for their kids so when from one grade or from one campus to the next the parent had the resources on what was working for their child and why so 
Yes, I encourage you guys to extend or put inside your books or your program a parent element so that your parents are uh, working with the, the school. Love it. Well, I think we're about out of time. Nancy, you shared with me earlier that you have something that to share, a freebie or, or something that you'd like to share with the audience. Can you uh, talk about that? Thank you for adding that. Uh, my website is dyslexiaconnects.com. And you're welcome to reach out to me. Uh, I do go in and train in school, so that is available. But at the end, there's a, a section called resources. And for your students who are struggling with reading that have dyslexia, I have found a strategy for sight words that is beneficial to be working alongside of decoding. If you know anything about Dr. Kilpatrick, he'll tell you about the mapping and just repeating sight words. It, it, I mean, that there's a reason kids get bored of it. They're like, it's not going in. And he is correct. They need to see the, to break things down, morphemes. Oh my goodness. But while they're working on morphemes and while they're building those decodable skills, this sight word process that I have done for over 15 years, I have seen my kids engage in books so much faster because they're getting in between three and five sight words into memory a week. But again, you have to follow it with fidelity. And I train my parents on it. This is one of my number ones. It is not a classroom teacher. There's just not that time built in the classroom, but it's an at-home and if you have families that you're like, it's not going to happen at home, then we do it inside of their pullout. And so we just incorporate this uh, sight word strategy. It's on the on my website. And so please feel free to go there and check that out. And I will be having a book coming out soon. So there'll be some additional information uh, coming hopefully by the end of this year. So thank you for allowing me the time to share that. So thank you. This has been an amazing, what, 45 minutes or so. So thank you for your time today, Nancy. It was great to have you here. I'm loving this. I want to get to know you a little bit more. I'm looking forward to uh, running into you in July. For our listeners, our podcast releases on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month during the school year. Listen to the previous episodes of this podcast at The Writing Glitch and join the Writing Glitch community to find out more strategies. And remember, you were put here for such a time as this. Post-podcast production is sponsored by Sam C. Productions. Thanks. I think that's a wrap. Woo!